CB On Air, cutting-edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello and welcome to this episode of CB On Air's Rewiring Macro series. I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking. Um, macroeconomics has taken a fair amount of flack in recent years, um, so the goal behind this series is to ask how and where macroeconomics needs fixing, and to speak directly to economists whose work is taking the field in new directions. Uh, we're not going to let macroeconomics lightly, so uh, I'm here with... Uh, Professors John Wellbauer and David Hendry uh, of Nuffield College, Oxford, uh, who have been pretty critical of central banks' use of dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models in the past. Uh, but they also have some ideas about how economists might be able to do a better job in future. Uh, John, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we d- dive into specifics, how would you characterise the kind of the broad state of modern macroeconomics? Have macroeconomists gone astray somewhere along the line? I think we need to distinguish um, theory from evidence-based developments. So since the global financial crisis, um, I think theory has, has responded pretty strongly to um, dealing with financial crises in general and introducing banking and frictions and so on into, into models, into theory models. Um, unfortunately, on the model building side, the empirical models, um, progress has been much less good. And before the global financial crisis, macro was in a really terrible state because the, the macro models that central banks were using left out the most important things, namely credit, asset prices, housing, all those things that, that really mattered. Yes, I very much agree with that. And uh, I think also underpinning it has been a misunderstanding about the roles of theory and evidence in building models that uh, exemplified by the pagan uh, trade-off between theory and evidence, you can evidently provide it quote-unquote good theory. It doesn't matter how inconsistent with reality it is. Whereas some of us think that's really rather a problem if it's inconsistent with reality. <laughs> it feels like there's more of an understanding of the, the problems that that causes now rather than you know uh, this obsession with a, a nice, neat, closed economic model. It's the tractability of micro-founded theory that I think has been a major problem. Because, you know, we, we had the asymmetric information revolution that Joe Stiglitz was so instrumental in uh, bringing forward. And that taught us a huge amount about micro-foundations. I mean, it taught us that people are much less forward-looking than textbook theory implies, that liquidity constraints are important, credit constraints are important, uh, there are lags in the process of adjustment, there's a lot of heterogeneity. All of these things have profound implications for how one thinks about uh, the macroeconomy. And they were ignored in the new Keynesian DSG models that preceded the global financial crisis. I would add to that that we've known for a very long time that economic data and all the derived data like climate, etc., is highly non-stationary, so the distributions are changing all the time. But most of the models that were being used are equilibrium models. An economy is not an equilibrium system. It's always adjusting towards clearing, towards reaching a solution. But at every stage, it's been shifted away from that. And failure to take account of non-stationarity has been a real bugbear relative to, say, the econometricians who've done a huge amount of work trying to understand its properties, how to deal with it, and how to build models incorporating it. Okay, 
that's that's all really interesting. So perhaps we could take a, a sort of step slightly backwards and um, look at the, the history. How did we get to this point? Um, obviously, a very famous uh, turning point was, was the Lucas critique, but I don't know whether that's necessarily a good place to start. Is it? Do we need to go back even further than that? Much further than that, <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the big debate around Tinbergen's pre-war models was all about their invariance to changes, autonomy, as it was called. And Frisch basically wrote what Lucas then copied, saying that it's very unlikely that models will be autonomous to changes. Indeed, you couldn't imagine a world in which everything was autonomous because then no change would affect other things and changes wouldn't occur. And that debate has uh, iterated on. We've done a lot of work in the converse, which we call invariance is an equation invariant to certain classes of change. Now, no equation can be invariant to every class of change, like a nuclear war. I mean, just the economy is not going to be the same at the end of it. But equations can be mainly invariant to many of the changes that are going on. And that then gives you a structure in a different sense from the way that uh, it's used, to, as you quote, structural econometric models. DSGEs came to be that. But I don't think it was just the Lucas critique. I think it was the oil crisis, the forecast failure. And I think there are also political motives in shifting away from Keynesian models to a class that didn't suggest that governments could actually help the economy. Yeah, I think um, people who, whose ideology um, was consistent with the, the pre-Keynesian classical view saw their chance um, because the global oil price crisis going off um, well, the Bretton, Bretton Woods um, collapse, the collapse of Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system uh, led to very big structural changes in, 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 in world economies and the existing Keynesian models which were focused on demand side factors were inadequate to deal with huge supply shocks. So they needed to be fixed but um, what the um, the Lucas, the Lucas crowd um, put forward uh, actually in the long run hasn't helped because it hasn't helped understand what the consequences of oil price shocks are. Um, it focused instead on the fundamental critique, um, using the excuse that the big models, the Keynesian models, were breaking down, uh, in order to put forward a, a very different classical revolution. The models break down for many reasons. But surprisingly, the, the key reason is something like an oil shift. Now, the oil shift, the, the way it came about, was probably nearly unpredictable. I mean, I'm sure there are a few people who basically understood the causes of the Yom Kippur War and what would happen in the formation of OPEC, but I doubt if most economists really grasped what was going on. So when these things shift, all models fail. I mean, it's, I think if you re-ran a DSGE over that period, it would fail. And we know that Compass, the Bank of England's replacement model for its broken Beckham, has also failed when it's rerun over the financial crisis. I mean, it just doesn't pick it up at all. And that's because the, these big crises are what cause forecast failure, but they also cause model failure and theory failure. They're, they're, all, they're not independent things. And we need models that are much more adaptable if we're going to have a macroeconomy that matches reality to any great extent.
So if I, if I have this right, the, those structural models were attempting to, to solve that problem, uh, sort of encapsulated in the Lucas critique, that uh, when there's a structural shift, the econometric model, uh, the previous trend doesn't, doesn't hold anymore, and so continuing to focus on that is, is foolish. And if you have this perfect model of the economy, it will be able to encompass that. Which was untrue, yes. Lucas, Lucas did not understand that every forecast failure implied a theory failure, right? Because the, the things that cause forecast failure are distributional shifts, often the mean of the distribution of endowments or of prices or of whatever shifts. And that then means that all the theory-based models, which assume constant distributions, simply break down. And that's why Beckham broke down in the financial crisis. It's... Um, you know, it, it's not so much that forecast failure is the problem, it's the misunderstanding of the consequences of forecast failure for modelling, forecasting, policy and theory that I think is the basic problem. So clearly there are, are many drawbacks with the uh, DSGs and other structural models. Uh, do you think there are ways to make them more flexible so that they could capture these structural changes in the economy? Are you asking whether you think that the new Keynesian DSG model can be adapted to, to be more flexible? That I suppose so, question. yes. Yeah. Well, you see, the new Keynesian DSG model seems to me so fundamentally misspecified um, because everything's wrong about it. The, the microeconomics, the microfoundations are wrong. The expectations assumptions are wrong. The implied estimated dynamics you get from those models are wrong. I mean, in the real world, dynamics are quite different. The feedbacks from, from the financial accelerator, which the global financial crisis uh, taught us, were really important. I mean, they are missing in these models. So there's no simple way of, of fixing that model. You need a radical, radical change. There's too much of a straitjacket. One analogy I use is it's like asking a quantum physicist to derive a theory of vortices from quantum mechanics. <laughs> you cannot do it. The properties of vortices are aggregate things. They're, they're a system property in the same way the macroeconomy is. But if you make your agents be totally optimizing over time, and that'll break down every time something shifts, they form rational expectations, which is a conditional expectation, which also will shift when the distribution shifts, that they're a representative agent, although there's now some attempt to introduce heterogeneity, but until we understand that the agents themselves must be much more adaptable than the models, the models will therefore never work, right? So the straitjacket that DSGE frameworks impose, I think, mitigates against them ever working. Right. And uh, ever working even if you add in all these advances that we're... But then they're no longer DSGEs. They're now becoming much more like the Keynesian models they claim to replace. Keynesian models with both supply and demand. It was a drawback of the Keynesian models are mainly demand-focused. You need both sides, and indeed the very earliest models by people like Marshak were about aggregate demand and supply. And then that got forgotten in the attempt to model one side of the economy quite well, but not well enough given the uh, ignoring of the other sides. So as you probably know from even PPE, there's, you can measure the economy by total expenditure, total income or total output. And frankly, you need models of all three, and they need to be integrated in such a, a consistent way. DSGEs have no hope of doing that, in my view. Very interesting. Okay. I mean, I, I do think that in terms of the, in terms of thinking about the world, 
heterogeneous agent DSG models are very helpful. I mean, they, they highlight many mechanisms that, um, that are relevant, um, the understanding of which is relevant, and, and they do focus on heterogeneity, um, on credit constraints, liquidity constraints, on the fact that households can't insure their, their income perfectly. Insurance markets um, are far from perfect, and therefore that short-term considerations are much more important. So understanding those things, um, you know, if developing a theoretical model that has a generative form helps understand some of those mechanisms, I'm all in favor of theoretical models. Um, <clears throat> of course, the, the, the assumption of model-consistent rational expectations becomes very problematic when you think about heterogeneity in, in a deep way. So you, you, you would be okay using DSG models perhaps for narrower questions. Um, do you think it's dangerous for central banks to be setting policy on the basis of DSG? Policy models need to be much more embedded in, in time series data, macro time series data, that takes full account of the rich structure of, of the economy. So they need to include the housing market, the mortgage market, um, oil shocks, um, commodity prices, so the, the labour market. And to get a tractable, useful policy model, the DSG approach is just not going to help you. There's the additional problem that almost all policies involve location shifts. The interest rate goes from 1% to 2%. Now, location shifts are precisely what cause forecast failure. So very often, the policy, when it's introduced, unless the target it's aiming for, say, inflation, is invariant to those shifts, it will not occur, right? And so the policy will actually bring about the seeds of its own destruction. So you really need to be very thorough in checking whether what you hope the policy will affect will not be shifted by the policy you're introducing to affect it. Right? And that's something that very rarely happens in central banks, as far as I can tell, and is assumed away in DSGEs. They assume that they are structural, they represent the, the basic behaviour in the economy. So they're always going to face that problem. Right, OK. Um, so I, I'm getting the sense that you think econometric models, uh, much more flexible models, are uh, probably the solution here. Um, what sort of direction should we, going, should we be going in terms of thinking about these? Right. Um, forecasting models are made up of several components, of which the key one is, if you like, the, the fundamental model from which the forecasts are being derived. Then there's the data input, the, uh, the forecast horizon, whenever you're, so forecast origin, whenever you're trying to get the, the thing going. But underlying it are assumptions about what the future will look like. Now, we have not made a great deal of progress in forecasting shifts, right? They come upon us, surprise, Brexit's out, Brexit's out the blue, Trump's out the blue, etc. Some people thought they knew they were coming, but even retrospectively, the oil crisis was probably out the blue for most things. So until we can forecast the actual shift, we're always going to forecast failure at the time of the shift. Crucial question is, what do you do once you see the forecast failure? 
And if you stick with the same model, you'll get systematic forecast failure, as Compass has shown if it's used over the financial crisis. What you need is a model that adjusts immediately. And an analogy I overwork is Apollo 13, right, where the oxygen cylinder exploded, went off track, never got to the moon. Apollo 12 got there, bang on time. Apollo 14 got there, bang on time. Apollo 12 never got there. It's a massive forecast error. What do we learn from that forecast error? Well, we certainly don't learn that Newton's laws are wrong. So it tells you nothing about the underlying theoretical structure. And we don't learn that NASA's forecasting algorithm is wrong. Right? That, that very forecasting algorithms that appear to be refuted by the massive forecast failure were precisely what they used to bring the astronauts safely back to Earth. Right? But they're adaptive. They were very, very quickly on target. As soon as the spaceship wasn't going where they expected it to go, they immediately could forecast where it was going. The trouble with these big models is they don't allow adaption. They assume the equilibrium remains. And so we have invented methods of adding adaption, even to bad models, right? It's not, uh, but you cannot reject a model just because of forecast failure, nor can you claim it's correct just because its forecasts are okay. There are correlations between them, as John has shown in his work in forecasting US inflation. But it is the case that when you come to a forecasting model, you're dealing with statements about the future, and they can be obtained in ways that are very different from understanding the current state, the past state, and even what policy will do. One way of addressing the question is to think about the, the current non-DSG models being used at central banks. So in the, in the US, the FRIBUS model, FRB US model, has been around for 20 years or so. Um, it is not DSG, so it has a very rich specification. It's got investment functions, consumption functions, labor market equations, price equations, and so on. And it has one really interesting feature, which is the way it handles expectations. Now, expectations were a key part of the Lucas critique. Uh, there was the omitted expectations, as Lucas argued in, in the old Keynesian models, were fundamental in the specification. Now, Fribus addresses this issue, and they address it by using limited information models to, um, to model how consumers form expectations of, of the future. Now, that's a good thing. And I think David's ideas about, about how people forecast in practice and how they deal with forecast failure suggests that a robust forecasting device um, is an important ingredient of doing a good job of modelling people's expectations. People's actual expectations are very different from textbook assumptions. But that's one positive thing about, about frivolous. What I think is so negative about it is that the biggest equation, the most important equation, the consumption sector, is very badly misspecified because they assume that credit conditions are irrelevant except through net worth. Net worth is liquid assets plus illiquid assets um, minus debt, which includes mortgage debt, um, plus housing wealth. And the assumption that all these things have exactly the same effect on consumption is totally misleading. Um, actually, liquid assets are much more spendable than illiquid assets. How's the effect of housing wealth and consumption is time-varying 
depends very much on credit conditions and the nature of financial regulation. Debt is much more important in terms of its impact on consumption than these models imply. And so that's a huge misspecification. My worry is that actually all the central bank models around at the moment, the non-DSG models, make the same mistake. They all have consumption functions where net worth, the simple aggregate of, of um, what people, what households own, drives consumption and ignore shifts in credit conditions. And those are two really fundamental misspecifications in the, the most important equation of each of these models. That's where I think progress has to be made. But that sounds like something that could, where we could make progress more straightforwardly without sort of abandoning the whole model. Exactly. Yeah. And added to that, there's a, the basic economic theories of consumption are all smoothing theories. Agents get an income and they smooth it over time. Now, most countries don't actually produce the raw data on consumer expenditure over time. But if you look at the UK's data, which we have done extensively, it's like the Alps, right? It goes way up at Christmas, crashes, and then, then it goes back up in the middle of the year and crashes again, then it goes back up at Christmas. And it's anything but smoothing. I mean, people binge. We know they binge. They binge all the time. And because of that, the building models that assume agents are smoothing their consumption pattern when they're distinctly not and building up over time, I think rather uh, adds to John's problems with them, that they, uh, the, the impacts of different things. So if you look at the period of the loss and boom in Britain in the uh, late 80s, and then, yes, that's right, yeah, and then the crash that followed, consumption fell when incomes did not fall. Right. Now, that's completely inconsistent with consumption smoothing. And the reason is exactly what John said. It was debt. House prices were falling dramatically in real terms. People were being repossessed on a huge scale. And therefore, they cut back dramatically in consumption to pay the high interest rates that now had appeared on their mortgages in order to keep their houses. And so debt not being modelled in these situations led to very bad mispredictions of consumption. In fact, the Treasury thought consumption wouldn't fall, although it fell by more than 1.5% for two years. I mean, really quite a big drop. It feels like maybe we're, we're starting to relearn that lesson. I, I remember, for instance, there was a recent, recent-ish paper by uh, Amir Sufi, I think, uh, looking at... Mian and Sufi. Mian and Sufi, yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh, kind of making that point. Um, but maybe we, we're still hung up on DSGE models, or, or at least central banks are, and that's... that's making it harder to get past or to, to learn those lessons. Yes. There are shifts. Let, let me quote you something from the, the new Australian model. So they say, a weakness of DSG models is that they often do not fit the data as well as other models, and the causal mechanisms do not always correspond to how economists and policymakers think the economy really works. So that, that's their fundamental criticism. Um, and the reason why they um, introduced a new model. And by the way, Adrian Pagan was an advisor on a review of modelling at the Reserve Bank, uh, the Australian Reserve Bank, which preceded this shift, which I think is an interesting sign of the times. You think he's moved? <laughs> I think he might have moved. Yes, I have. I'm not familiar with his work, I'm afraid. He was also advisor to the Bank of England on bringing in DSGEs at the bank. 
and although he did suggest that they needed a suite of models, one of which should be built by automatic model selection procedures because they're so inexpensive and quick to use that they can uh, be used alongside without a huge input of person power to do it, which DSGEs clearly require, both on the theory and the implementation side and on the solution side as well. It feels like uh, sort of advances in, in data and computing power and so on are making the, the task somewhat easier, or, although as you mentioned with the Apollo 13 uh, example, it's perfectly possible to forecast using a pen and paper very accurately. It can be, but it can also be perfectly wrong to do so. <laughs> One sees lots of claims about what will happen. The, the famous quote was the people who forecast eight of the last two recessions. <laughs> Yeah. The, the ECB, by the way, is developing um, non-DSG models for the five major uh, economies in, in the Eurozone. Right, okay. Presumably there's an extra challenge in the Eurozone because it's a more complicated The interactions between the economies are really important, yeah. Right, so that's a big challenge. Yes. And they've got, um, I th is it uh, Frank Smets working for them, so obviously, yeah. Yes, is, is the uh, the new head of the, the group that's um, that's producing the model. Yeah. But there's obviously a willingness to, to rethink things. Yes, that's encouraging. Partly, but the Smets and Wooters model also had lots of ad hoc features added on to the DSGE to make it work at all. So he must have been aware that you can't just do it from first principles. Right, okay, and um, I wanted to touch on a couple of other ideas as well. Um, one of the recent papers from the collection you contributed to was uh, from Haldane and Turrell on um, agent-based modelling. Have you looked into that at all? Does that seem like a, a prom promising avenue? I'm, I'm quite enthusiastic about, about the general approach. Um, one of our colleagues at uh, the Institute for New, New Economic Thinking in Oxford is, is Don Farmer, who, among other wonderful contributions to intellectual progress um, has done some very interesting agent-based modeling work. Um, he was involved in a, in a very interesting model of the Washington DC housing market um, developed in the 2000s which used microdata and came to the conclusion that it was the relaxation of credit constraints in the housing market that caused, was the main cause of the big boom in house prices which is actually what we find also from our macroeconometric models. So the agent-based approach actually gave some very interesting insights into the way the Washington housing market operated, which gave general insights into the, the US housing market. So I think it, it's, it's a very important um, potential for progress. So I, I interact quite a bit with Don and uh, not much with uh, Andy. Mm -hmm. But the obvious thing about agent-based models is have they got the right model of the agents that are going in there. And I see our agents as in, in general economies as being very much more hand-to-mouth. There's a large percentage of them are like that. They very much form expectations extrapolatively back in the way that uh, you see people buying houses at the peak of the boom or selling at the trough and so on in stock markets as well. They cannot therefore have sat down to think about what the situation's like and just extrapolating. And we know that momentum trading works in stock markets and that has to be just a straight extrapolation. So I think we need m many more 
detailed studies of the range of the heterogeneity across agents in order to understand how you would build an agent-based model in which agents do, I think, error-correct a lot of the time. They, they don't make... I mean, the double whammy for DSGEs is they assume their agents are as stupid as the people who built the models, right? They're not, they're not adjusting either, right? Which, of course, they are. They're adjusting very rapidly. And as soon as they see their bank balances going down, they, they either they have to borrow or they have to cut back. And that has to be... You have to have these mechanisms built into agent-based models if the agent-based models are to be realistic representations of economies. But I, I, I mean... Uh, Guy Orchard started doing this back in the 1960s to try and show that macroeconomics could use microeconomics as a basis, but he wasn't assuming the kind of representative rational agent that underpins DSGEs. His agents were much more adaptive. One of the tragedies of, of macroeconomics is that the focus on rational expectations has led the profession and the central banks and the institutions away from actually collecting data on how people actually form expectations. So we should have, we should have had for the last 30 or 40 years, central bank, uh, government f funded surveys of how consumers form expectations, not just of inflation, but also of growth, of unemployment, of housing. Yeah. Um, housing is one of those areas where the extrapolated expectations that David was talking about are really, really important. All the evidence points to that. Yeah, so jumping onto the bandwagon as soon as it starts, which creates the bandwagon, and then more people jump on. And of course, at some point, it hits a brick wall, and uh, it's, you know, last off holds the baby, so to speak. But it is amazing. When, when we had Gallup poll estimates of agents' expectations during the inflation at 25%, in 1975-6, there were agents who thought prices were falling. You don't know wh where they were shopping or what they were doing, but <laughs> they actually recorded that it, prices are going down. And they were treated as outliers in the Gallup poll to try and get some sort of sensible expectation out. But I, I totally agree with John. It's amazing how a variable that central banks claim is fundamental to policy and all its uh, leading guidance, etc. And yet it doesn't collect any data on what people actually think is happening out there. It feels like there's, there's some quite exciting directions for economics to go here. and We're not at a dead end, which I'm, I'm pleased to hear. Um, one, one final question I wanted to put to you was, is there... Is there a way to make this coherent and, and simple enough to explain to an undergraduate? Because it feels like there's lots of moving parts. We've got to think about lots of different aspects of the economy. It's not necessarily going to be that easy to simplify them all down to the three-equation model, which is, is what I learned here, certainly. Um, the Karlin uh, Nasoskis textbook is, um, is one step forward. The, the core project with which um, Wendy Carlin is strongly associated, uh, I think, is, is very important in, in developing new thinking about, about macro. Um, but the, that textbook has a pretty good treatment of banking, and that's, that, that was really missing in, in macroeconomics teaching for a long time. You know, it was there back in the 60s and yes, the 70s, was, yeah. and then it fell out of favour. But understanding banking um, is an important part of, of macro, should be an important part of macro teaching, and that's one of the few textbooks that, that 
really does a good job on that. Yes, I mean, one, one of the other problems is that there's a very big distinction between money and credit, and they're often conflated in debates, and you hear people focusing on money. Money demand equations I've estimated throughout my entire career, and they're always incredibly constant, right? The, the way people behave in response to inflation, to income, to interest rates, and so on, really leads to remarkably stable money demand equations, because money, the amount of money out there is what we want. Right? If we want it, we get it. It can be created by, if you like, a virtual particle. If you go to a bank and you want some money, the bank, if it hasn't got it, will take a bond or a bill down to central bank and get it. And so we get the amount of money. We do not get the amount of credit we necessarily want. So money went up hugely with the Fed's uh, QE, but credit, I think, actually went down slightly. So that distinction is very, very important. And any undergraduate course it's going to teach about macro has to draw that distinction I would actually drop money as not being fantastically relevant despite the fact that you've got people at Friedman saying it's the main cause of inflation there's virtually zero evidence for that the main cause of inflation is excess demand for goods and services of which might be driven by money but more likely driven by credit right and uh, you want, then want the model to explain the supply side you could just have an aggregate supply equation how much goods and services stuff is being produced by the economy, the demand side, how much of it will be purchased by the agents in the economy, the employment side, how much are people earning in order to get the income to buy the stuff, etc. And then the price equation, which is a bit more complicated, but if you could then explain that real wages are more or less coming out of productivity, right? Not exact, but it's close enough with a little bit of effect on unemployment. And then prices are coming out from the markup of companies over and above the cost of production. You could, you could build a fairly straightforward six or seven equation model, which I actually had in a textbook in 1994, suggesting that that's how you could put together a macro model if you wanted a simple uh, way of explaining how the interactions and then you can shock it you can have a reduction in credit and you can see how that would affect purchasing by consumers which would affect the inventories of firms which would affect what they produce which would then affect their markups and so on though I, I'd add that the market power of, uh, of workers and of and of firms in price setting um, should be an important part of a wage price model yeah and also I think the the credit aspect that David uh, mentioned, I think, is really important. How credit is generated, how shifts in credit have evolved over time, and um, the credit that consumers, firms have access to, that provides a linkage with the, with the financial system, and that I think must be an important part of, of, of any model. Right. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.